welcome to episode 1463 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I am doing all right. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone listening. We are pre-recording, so we are inauthentically wishing each other happy Thanksgiving a few days before Thanksgiving. I guess it's not inauthentic. I am authentically wishing you a happy Thanksgiving just prior to Thanksgiving. Yeah, I still hope you have a good time. Thank you. (laughs) You too. So because we'll be doing stuff and traveling and seeing family and a lot of you will be also and we'll have travel and we'll need things to plug into your ears or put on the car stereo. We are doing this a little bit early and most of the episode will be a conversation with Fangraph's Jay Jaffe about the Hall of Fame. We like to talk to Jay just about every year because he is constantly breaking down Hall of Fame stuff around this time of year. So we'll get into all of that and unfortunately you had some urgent managing editor (laughs) business come up right before that conversation so it's just me and Jay. But before we bring him on, One thing I wanted to bring up, so we're hoping to have Jeff on at some point this offseason, subject to approval. He has to get the go-ahead to do that, but hoping he will. And one thing that I was thinking maybe we could do with him was talk about this year's Hall of Fame artifacts, the things that were saved from the 2019 season and sent to the Hall of Fame, because very memorably, I went over last year's Hall of Fame artifacts with Jeff on, I think, the first episode of this year, episode 1360 on January 2nd and we just went line by line on a list of things that were sent to the Hall of Fame and Jeff was incredulous about most of them particularly (laughs) an Eduardo Nunez bat that was sent to the Hall of Fame presumably because the Red Sox won the World Series so they just took a bat that Eduardo Nunez had swung at some point and Jeff thought that was just ridiculous but even if we do have Jeff on it is probably safer for us to steer away from talking about active players I don't know if it could be construed as tampering if Jeff were to pass judgment on the Hall of Fame worthiness of an artifact that was sent to the Hall but just to be safe not going to do that with Jeff But the list is out. There is a list of things that were saved from the season and sent to the hall. And I've looked it over, and frankly, it's not that bad. There aren't that many egregious choices or choices that just make you wonder why they thought that thing was worth preserving at Cooperstown. But because this is a Hall of Fame-centric episode, I thought it might make sense to run these by you, see what you think. So... There's a a longer list of regular season artifacts and then a shorter list of postseason artifacts. So the things that were saved from the Nationals, from the World Series that I think have already maybe been displayed at the Hall or, or soon will be in an artifact about that series or this postseason We've got a Davey Martinez hoodie, which uh, I don't know, not not a huge draw probably, but if it was the hoodie he was wearing in that epic tantrum after the interference play, then uh, maybe if it's got like spittle on it from when he yelled at the umpires, I could see I that. I don't think he was wearing a hoodie when that was happened, though, no. because oh, okay. weren't, they, uh, weren't they in Houston for that? Oh, okay. Game? Yeah. Huh. All Isn't right. that where that took place? So well, it's probably then. a non, <laughs> uh, but maybe, but uh, 
uh, maybe it's another another key another key moment. Maybe it's a moment where he called for an intentional walk. Yeah, sure, right. He he probably made some momentous decision while he was wearing <laughs> this hoodie. So hey, kids, there's the hoodie that <laughs> David Martinez is wearing. Not the best, but then there's some other good stuff here. Steven Strasburg game six jersey. That's yeah. pretty good. Howie Kendrick game seven home run ball. I mean, that's if you had to choose one artifact from that series, it probably would be that. Yeah, that's one of the biggest hits in baseball history and it's even cooler because it's got the uh, hall of fame pr person tweeted a picture of it and it has like a little stripe of yellow on it from where it hit the foul pole which is even better i mean it tells a story i mean that is that's the best possible artifact and then you've got max scherzer's game seven cap which is pretty good just the whole story of max scherzer being out there at all in that game You've got the Juan Soto game one home run ball. All right. You've got Anthony Rendon's bat. I don't know if he was using that same bat the whole series, but obviously he had some big hits. Then you've got Kurt Suzuki spikes, which, uh, eh, you know, I don't know. He was on the team (laughs) and (laughs) the spikes appeared in that series. So, yeah, (laughs) I guess. I mean, he had he had a couple of uh, I don't know important blocks, <laughs> blocks and balls. Yeah, sure, he hit was some, there. Hit some home runs. Didn't he he participated. Runs? Yeah, well, did he? Uh, he he did something good. He he threw out. <laughs> I distinctly remember him throwing out Jose Altuve right yeah. at third base. I think that was Kurt Suzuki, and uh, I don't know. He did have hits or or a hit. <laughs> he, he entered that series, I think, over the postseason but then he did ultimately he get had, on base at least in that yeah. series he, he had a two-hit game in game two right yeah that's so. true yeah. all right <laughs> but sure. yes you're you're right an an 18 wrc plus for the postseason in Toto does not suggest <laughs> that he went on a chair no and then fernando rodney's glove which uh, again if we're talking about big contributions to the series it's not really up there, but the fact no. that Fernando Rodney was in that series at all, and and wasn't it like the the longest uh, drought between World Series appearances for a player or something like that? It was somewhat historic in nature for him to be at that age in that series and having not pitched in a World Series in a long time. It's fine. Whatever. Fernando yeah. Rodney's cool. We like him. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Oh, and they also saved one of Gerardo Parra's baby sharks. Gotta keep a baby shark. That's essential. So that's the the World Series stuff that they saved. And then there's a a bunch of regular season stuff that they saved, which uh, some of it definitely historic significance. And it's kind of cool to look back at the list because you call some of the historic firsts that happened this year even if it wasn't like a statistical milestone or something just you know there were some cool things that happened in baseball this year amidst all the not so cool stuff so for example like a ball used during the March 20th game in Tokyo between the A's and the Mariners mm-hmm. you know that was a it was a fun event that that happened and then there are some in that category, which we'll get to. But, you know, then you go from that to the spikes worn by the twins, Jorge Polanco, on April 5th when he hit for the cycle against the Phillies. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about I don't I don't know about that. I, I assume you said April 5th. Yes. So I assume that that was the first cycle of the season. Probably that's probably. what what merits 
yeah. what merits that. I guess, yeah. Maybe. I, it's not the only cycle thing preserved because Kevin Biggio's gloves, his batting gloves, when he hit for the cycle in September, are also there, which he is uh, half of the second father-son duo to hit for a major league cycle because Craig Biggio hit for the cycle, and I think it was, what, it was like... Daryl Ward and Gary Ward, I think, maybe both hit for the cycle. And so they weren't even the first father-son duo to both hit for the cycle. But, uh, well, whatever. I, it's better than the typical cycle. So I don't know. I mean, is, the cycle in general. Uh, like, I, I didn't even remember that Jorge Polanco hit for the cycle. So that's news to me, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's not like that's a memory that stands out about the 2019 season that my trip to the hall would feel incomplete if there were not something marking the historic occasion of Jorge Polanco's cycle. Anyway, that's there. Then there is the first pitch ball from the Angels' April 10th game against the Brewers when Albert Pujols became the 10th player in history to appear in 1,000 games for two different MLB teams. <sighs> okay. <sighs> Yeah. See, it's the first pitch ball, though. It's like, yeah. it's not even, I mean, Albert Pujols isn't a leadoff hitter, so it's not even like a, a pitch that he saw. Like, if you had, I like it's, I mean, 10th player in history to appear in a thousand games for two different teams. I guess it's a cool accomplishment. It's the 10th, but probably all 10 are pretty good, I guess. But if you're going to save something, like give me his glove from that game. Yeah. At least give me like the first pitch he saw in that game. Not Why just wouldn't like you just include the his first bat? pitch. Yeah, or his bat. Sure. Why wouldn't right. you just include his bat? Yeah. Have it be a, have it be a him thing, a thing that's yeah. his. That right. ball's not his. Yeah, or like the first base bag that he was standing on, if he was even playing first base that day. So, yeah, I, I mean, borderline even to include something about Pujols and the, the 1,000 games for two teams thing. But if you're yeah. going to include something, like make it Pujols specific. Give me his cap or something at least. Especially because, you know, he had some some home run moments that were especially right. meaningful this year. Yeah. So you could include... I mean, I know that you can't get those balls back all the time, and sometimes players mm -hmm. don't want to give them up even when they yes. are able to bribe their way back to them, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I bet he's like, this cap, sure, I wore that cap that day. You take this <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Then we've got a ball used during the April 13th game in Monterey, Mexico, between the Reds and the Cardinals, just in that same genre of game played in unusual place. So save something from that game. That's It's fine. I don't mind that. Sure. A jersey worn by the Yankees' CeCe Zabathia on April 30th during the game against the Arizona Diamondbacks, where he struck out his 3,000th career batter, along with a ball thrown by Sabathia to record his 3,000th third career strikeout on May 6th. So on the one hand, I think that those, you know, I'm I'm sympathetic to wanting to have CC-related things yes. in the hall. On the other hand, you even just describing it was hard to say. Yes. <laughs> you just had, a hard, just had a hard time even saying that, which yeah. makes me think it's not good. Oh, I made a I made a very bad cycle joke related to Jorge Polanco on oh, Twitter. Yeah? What was it? I don't know if this is too crude for effectively <laughs> wild. Uh, eh, no such thing. I screenshotted breaking news. First cycle of 2019 belongs to Jorge Polanco. And I responded, now all the other cycles will sink to his. <laughs> Which is a joke about ladies and See, menstruation. Put that, put that tweet in the Hall of Fame. 
I'd oh, rather thanks. see that tweet than yeah. The, yeah, so you get a lot of little kids asking questions. Their <laughs> parents might not be ready to you. <laughs> so CC like the jersey when he got his three thousand. That's fine. Yeah. I, I don't know about the the three thousand and third right. strikeout. I don't know about that. I mean, it wasn't his last strikeout. It wasn't the three thousandth strikeout. It's just <laughs> did it did did that strikeout push him past some important historical figure? Uh, right? Did that make him the I don't, know. I, I don't know. It doesn't even make him the most strikeoutedness. That's not a word. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Was that? Does that represent a, a milestone of some sort? It seems like it must if they're t- if they're taking it. Or am I giving them? I don't know. They took the cycle ball, so yeah, I'm, they take a lot of things. <laughs> so I <laughs> so probably shouldn't give them see. credit. Is that something? So CC now ranks uh, 16th all time with 3,093. That's pretty good. And yeah, three thousand three. That's nothing. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that is nothing. There's there's no one between Jim Bunning at twenty eight fifty five and Justin Verlander, who right now is at three thousand six, or or John Smoltz at three thousand eighty four. So no, three thousand three. Uh, that's nothing. I, I don't know if that was like his last strikeout of the game where he went over three thousand or something. But eh, no, that's. That's not near the top of the list of things that I would save even related to 3,000 strikeouts. I suppose we have to be somewhat sympathetic to the Hall's plight here. I mean, we don't have to be, but it's <laughs> it's Thanksgiving, so we can be sure. we can be generous, which is that there's like a, you know, there's a sweet spot. They want to have artifacts of historical significance, mm-hmm. right? But those are also hard to to procure, I would think, you know, when they're yep. ones that go into the stands or what have you, people are going to sit there and say, I'm going to keep this home run ball. Or if it's mm-hmm. a pitcher, they might say, no, I, I especially want this one because it marks an important milestone in my career. Won't you let me have it? Yeah. And so- I guess we need to have some amount of sympathy to the fact that, like, maybe the one they could get was his three thousandth and third. That's just really hard to say. I know, man. <laughs> so it's do hard you think to say. They, they asked him for three thousand. He and said, he like, "No, Meh. that's that's pretty special to me. I, I'm going to put maybe. that in my home." And then they said, "Well, how about three thousand one? Uh, no, it's that's pretty close to three thousand. <laughs> Can we do three thousand two? Oh, gee, I really would like to help you out, but you know, that's only two away from three thousand. And then they said, all right, 3,003. And he said, okay, I, I guess I can part with that. Yeah, but CC was like, you know what, guys? That's really hard to say. I'd rather not have to ever <laughs> point to that ball in my home and say what, what strikeout it symbolizes. <laughs> so you take it on your way. I bet that's yeah. what happened. All right. The spikes worn by the Mets' Noah Syndergaard on May 2nd when he pitched a shutout against the Reds and hit a home run to account for the game's only run. True win. Noah Syndergaard. They saved the spikes from the true win. I think that as a nod to Effectively Wild and the wonderful conversation that this moment generated between you and Sam that they should absolutely put it in, but they should add a, a little a little audio button and they should yes. play your conversation about it. And only <laughs> if they do that am I supportive. Otherwise, I think they're missing important context and uh it's just another good outing from noah that's what Mm -hmm. i think about that all right the athletics cap worn by mike fires and a game ball from fires is no hitter against the reds on may 7th sure yeah fine sure no whatever no hitter it fires it was a second no hitter right which is somewhat unusual so okay i guess because i guess the first one came right after that trade from milwaukee Mm -hmm. yeah all right. The funny thing about that is that of all the things that Mike Fires has done uh, in this major league season or 
not long after it. One yeah. could argue that the no-hitter is the least memorable thing that he has contributed to the broader uh, save course. Save the facial hair. Yeah, save the facial hair. <laughs> save uh, save <laughs> his on-the-record quotes about the Astros. Yes. Mike Fires, you know, there's an argument to be made that he's had some of the most meaningful impact to the course of baseball history yeah. to emerge out of this season of any player in the league, which is yeah. hilarious for a guy who had that facial hair. Mm-hmm. All right. The batting gloves worn by the Rangers' Joey Gallo on May 8th when he became the third fastest player in history to reach the 100 home run mark yeah yeah no <laughs> so here's here's my question that i have about those sorts of mile acknowledging those sorts of milestones in a display which mm-hmm. is how often do they switch them out because yeah, after a right. while you're like he's the 15th fastest player <laughs> to do a thing and you're like well, all right yeah it, it might just be like for a, a month or two after the season or sure. something which is fine you know pretty low bar i guess there you could say it's just uh even if this is the best we could get it's not up to our standards it's not hall of fame worthy like you know Batting gloves, third fastest player to reach the 100 home run mark. It right. doesn't do much for me. I like Joey Gallo, but yeah. Eh. But yeah, I mean, if it's just a temporary thing, but like, does it tell a story about the 2019 season? Not particularly. Not really. Like, yeah, so, yeah. all right. The Blue Jays cap worn by Edwin Jackson on May 15th when he became the first player to appear for 14 different big league teams. Absolutely. Yes, that's a first ballot, put it in there. All I wonder right. if they can go back and get all the other. Ooh, yeah. Can they get good. a cap, an actual? I mean, like you, you could. It could be from any day. It doesn't have to be from mm-hmm. a specific day. Can they go back and get one from every org he's played in? I wonder that if he's kept cool. them. Yeah, that'd be nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The first pitched ball from the June 13th game between the Tigers and Royals in Omaha, marking the first regular season MLB game played in Nebraska. It's, you know, one of those uh, playing somewhere we haven't played before. That's, sure, yeah, but it's okay, I guess. But, but it's Nebraska. Yeah. It right? Is. You don't have to change currency. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's it's the Tigers and the Royals, you said? Yep. All right. So put this in a very small corner of the room, I guess, is my, <laughs> yeah. my takeaway. You didn't need a passport to go there. It's just Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Yep. The spikes worn by the Yankees' Aaron Hicks on June 29th when he hit the first home run in a regular season MLB game on European soil. And also in that same category, there is the bat used by the Yankees' DJ LeMahieu on June 29th when he recorded the first hit in a regular season MLB game on European soil. So same genre there, but you do have to change currencies. Honestly, I think it would be more impressive for them to collect all of the balls and bats that didn't go for home runs or facilitate (laughs) them. Because as I recall, those games were quite high scoring. Yes, definitely that first one. Yeah. So, and oh, also in that same category, the jersey worn by the Red Sox is Christian Vasquez when he caught the first pitches of the Yankees versus Red Sox game in London on June 29th. Eh. Oh, and also home plate from the two London series games. Couldn't you just do that? Couldn't that be the, because what you're, what you're marking is the, is the location. The people Mm -hmm. who are involved in, the players involved in these specific actions are sort of incidental. What's interesting is the place and the the strongest and most obvious marker of the place is home plate. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. Take like an air sample or something. Just uh, here's some air from that game. I don't know. Then we've got the bat used by Futures Game MVP and Rangers prospect Sam Huff 
on July 7th. So I guess uh, Futures Game MVP, Sam Huff. Okay. Sure. (laughs) The cap worn by All-Star Game Most Valuable Player Shane Bieber on July 9th. Eh, You know, Eh. I, I guess same genre there. The caps worn by Angels pitchers Taylor Cole and Felix Pena during their combined no-hitter on July 12th, along with a ball from that game thrown by Pena and autographed by Cole, Pena, and catcher Dustin Garneau, and a jersey worn by the Angels Andrew Haney for that game when the Angels all wore jerseys honoring the late Tyler Skaggs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, we can uh, put that's, that in. Yes, okay. The spikes worn by Tony Thomas of the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs of the Atlantic <laughs> League on July 13th when he became the first player to steal first base, quote-unquote, under the new rules being tested. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in favor of that. Man, yep. I wonder what the commentary surrounding that looks like. <laughs> yeah, it, there's also got the earpiece used by home plate umpire Fred De Jesus in the Atlantic League game between the New Britain Bees and Long Island Ducks on July 25th, the first regular season game that made use of the automated ball strike system in the Atlantic League. So, same genre. That's uh, that's fine. I wonder if it's like a waxy earpiece uh, oh. that they clean it off first, or that they keep the earwax as a historic memento. I don't know, but. Oh. Either way, that seems deserving, I think. I guess probably, right? When you see artifacts of long ago battles in a museum, sometimes they're blood spattered and whatnot, yeah, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. The Orioles cap worn by Stevie Wilkerson on July 25th when he became the first position player to earn a save since the save rule was introduced in 1969, along with the final ball from that game. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I I have a hard time marking fun facts like that for a stat that we have just collectively decided we don't care about. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm like, why are we? Why are we? I mean, I I appreciate the novelty of it coming from a position player, but I don't care about saves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, meh, meh, yeah, barely. All barely. right, barely. A game-used ball signed by the four Astros hurlers, Aaron Sanchez, Will Harris, Joe Biagini, and Chris Devensky, who combined to pitch a no-hitter against the Mariners on (laughs) August 3rd, along with a cap worn by Sanchez in the game. Where was the game played? (laughs) I don't recall. You don't have to look. People can just assume that I was going to make a sassy sign-stealing joke. I was going to make a joke about (laughs) sign-stealing. Yeah. It's more of an accomplishment on the road. Yeah, I mean, they're pitchers, so yeah. I, I don't know. That I they know. Were. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It the was Mariners. poorly constructed. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, yeah. I don't need really any help. Yeah. <sighs> it was a yeah. poorly constructed joke, Ben. It wasn't my best. <laughs> well, I mean, no hitters against the Mariners, first of all. I don't know if that's even historic anymore. And a combined no hitter is just always that loses some of the luster of a no hitter. And it's not like the first combined no hitter. It's not even the only combined no hitter in the season that they're saving stuff from. So, no, and it's not, it's certainly, as, you, as you've noted, it is not the only no hitter the Mariners suffered. Yep. <laughs> they were sort of on a no hitter tear for a moment yeah. there. Yeah, that's a no from me. Mm. All right. The bat used by the Reds Aristides Aquino on August 10th when he hit three home runs in his 10th big league game. 
And that was in the midst of that, like, well, he's hit more homers in his first X big league games than anyone else streak. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Because I think it tells a story not only about him. Well, maybe it doesn't tell a story about 2019 because... He just hits a bunch of home runs. It, it might tell us. I mean, I don't know if he'll turn out to be a very good player or not, or if he'll just be someone we look back on and say, well, this was a product of the ultra-juiced, reduced drag ball year. Right. So I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Yeah. I don't love it, but I don't, don't hate love it. it. No. All right. A ball thrown by the Astros' Justin Verlander during his no-hitter, the third of his career against the Blue Jays on September 1st. So... It's Verlander, but it's his third no-hitter, and we're saving multiple Astros no-hitters artifacts here. I mean, I'd rather have this one than the combined no-hitter. I'd rather take this one than the combined, especially since it came in a Cy Young year, right? True, yes. So it sort of speaks to the overall quality of the season that he had. Yep. So I'm I'm okay with it. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm shaky on no-hitter balls, especially for guys who have thrown them previously uh, than I am for, I mean, like, Clearly, if there were a perfect game ball, we would want one of those in um, mm-hmm. just because of the, the the relative rarity. But yeah. of all the no-hitter balls, I suppose one that belongs to a guy who would go on to win the Cy Young is probably defensible. Mm-hmm. All right. A few more here. We've got the bat used by the Orioles' Jonathan VR on September 11th when he hit the 6,106th home run of the MLB season, a new record. I would argue that this is perhaps the most important if we, if we are if we are judging the worthiness of these objects by the degree to which they tell the story mm-hmm. of the season I would argue that this might be the most important one yeah. of all yeah. Uh, unless they can get like, I don't know, email printouts from the Astros for some <laughs> other nonsense, but that right. didn't even take place in this year. So, um, well, well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, the ones we know about weren't for this yes. year, I should say. So I would argue that this might be the most important one because I can't think of anything that we talked about more this yep. season than the ball. Yeah, that was the most emblematic thing. And and I yeah. like that it's Jonathan VR too. Yeah. It's like it's not some it's big perfect. slugger. It's like yes. the type of hitter who hit more home runs this year because of the ball. Jonathan it, VR hit twenty four home runs this exactly. year. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> yeah. it is it is good both for the significance of the object absent the context of the player, and then when you add in mm-hmm. the context of the player to that moment, it just is pretty perfect. Yeah. All right. That may be the best one. This may be the worst one. I don't know. This is oh, no. the, the helmet used by the Royals Whit Merrifield throughout oh. the 2019 season when he became the second right-handed batter in history. <laughs> To lead the majors in hits for two straight seasons. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Terrible. This that is offensive. <laughs> Candidly, it's offensive. Yeah, I mean, apologies to Mitt. Like you had a, a nice year, I guess, not as good as the the previous one. But like Sam and I talked about how he led the league in hits uh, on a previous episode, and yeah. that's nice. But second right-handed batter Terrible. to lead the majors in hits for two straight seasons. Terrible. No, get out of here. No. Get out of All here. Right. <laughs> A fan giveaway transistor radio commemorating 2000 Ford C. Frick Award winner Marty Brenneman's last game in the booth with the Cincinnati Reds. This is the sort of one that my my initial impulse is to say, eh. But yeah. I think upon 
brief further reflection (laughs) that I would be inclined to include it because this is the sort of thing that matters a great deal to the people in that specific uh, market. And Mm -hmm. baseball is nothing if not a local game primarily. And I think that while that means it is sometimes subject to uh, myopia, it is Mm -hmm. also subject to us celebrating uh, small moments that mean a great deal to us that other people don't know about. And this is Mm -hmm. emblematic of those. So I think this tells the story not only of 2019, but of all of baseball. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. Pretty good for a yeah. giveaway. They should have saved like the last time Marty Brenneman said that Joey Votto doesn't swing the bat enough or <laughs> he walks too much or something. That would have been nice. But Yeah, but, sometimes you know. our local heroes do disappoint us. <laughs> <laughs> a bat used by the White Sox, Tim Anderson, during the 2019 season when he led MLB with a 335 batting average. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's fine. It's a batting title. It's batting average. But it was a historically notable batting title in that I think he did he I think he walked the least of any batting title winner or at the lowest OBP or or something Something like like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And he had a historically significant season in some ways. And, yeah. was, you know, if you're going to talk about the 2019 season, you should probably mention Tim Anderson somewhere in there. Agreed. And the last one, a jersey worn by the Rangers, Elvis Andrews, on September 29th in the last game played at Globe Life Park. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think it only matters if they have it next to a jersey from the first game played at Globe Life Park so that you could very clearly see that so little time had passed (laughs) between those two events because you'd look at the the first one and say, that looks close to the same sort of uniform they would wear today. Mm -hmm. And then um, maybe you could have a a picture of a baby born one day (laughs) and that same baby now a grown person uh-huh. um on the last day and be like hey look at how these still are young people yes could do that yeah okay, okay. <laughs> well this i is like a little sass in my museums is what we're learning about this <laughs> well that's the end I, I think it's a probably a better list than last year's i remember there being even more head scratchers last year or maybe it was just jeff being more of a, a head scratching person i don't know but i I am sympathetic to the conundrum of, well, of museums generally, I suppose, but the Hall of Fame in particular, because, you know, baseball generates so many bits of information. There are so many potential things that matter. And I imagine that your impulse would be to be overly acquisitive so Mm -hmm. as to not look back 10 years later and say, oh, man, I really wish we had that thing. That thing ended up meaning so much and we don't have it anymore. With Merrifield Batting. Yeah, and now it's in a goodwill in in Kansas City and we'll never find it again, right? So Mm -hmm. I I am sympathetic to how uh, they have the impulse to um, acquire and I am curious what their procedure is for culling because I imagine they have to have one. Maybe we should we should find a hall person to ask this question to. Because at some point you're like, wow, we gotta, you know, it's not so dissimilar from your own uh, basement or attic or or front storage closet. I'm trying to pick a thing that might be relatable to you, Ben, as a person who has neither a basement nor an attic. At <laughs> yeah. some point you have to be like, oh gosh, I got too I got too much stuff in here. Mm-hmm. I gotta get rid of some of this stuff. I haven't used that broken coffee maker in like four years. Why do we still have it? Right. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we've gone through that exercise again, and now we can take a brief break, and I will be back with Jay Jaffe. So you and I will speak again next week. That sounds good. I'm very glad that we're not going to have to inadvertently inspire Jeff to commit baseball crimes. I know. I would not want to to get him fired unless that meant he could podcast, but then we'd have to have a a four-person rotation, and I don't know how that would work. Oh, I don't know. We could never possibly make that work. I'm (laughs) twirling a mustache I don't have. (laughs) All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Jeffy has been breaking down Hall of Fame ballots every year at various outlets dating back to 2004 when he started doing that for Baseball Prospectus. That is 15 years ago, which means that his Hall of Fame ballot breakdowns would have exhausted their own Hall of Fame eligibility (laughs) if we were still working with the 15-year ballot. He has resumed his annual labor, and he is churning out the player profiles for Fangraphs, of course, this year, and we like to have him on every year if we can to get the latest on the returning candidates and the new candidates and how the ballot looks overall. So he is just a few players into this year's ballot breakdown and hopefully is not too tired of talking Hall of Fame yet. Jay, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Ben. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, so I guess the big picture, and you've been breaking down both the new ballot, the returning players, and just the BBWA ballot candidates, as well as what are we calling the Veterans Committee now? Is the, this the, the modern. This is the modern baseball era committee ballot. Modern baseball, right? And yes. I will actually. I also need to correct you on one thing. I started uh-huh. doing ballot analysis in two thousand the two thousand two ballot at Futility ah. Infield. It was two. Two well-read posts there, two well-read series there that were what uh, led to the invitation from BP to uh, uh, to start doing this stuff there. Uh-huh. Um, so that's 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 how this all began was uh, at Futility Infielder. So seventeen. Seven, so I guess this is my eighteenth year. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's no, old enough. It's old. It's old enough to be. It's old enough to be drafted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that led to Jaws, and that led to the Cooperstown Casebook, and every year it adds some new wrinkle. So. You You are eligible to vote next year, and I got into the BBWA year after you, so I'm two years away from my first ballot. And if I were looking at the ballot as a voter this time around, which I'm not quite yet, but I think this might be the first time in a while that I might not have 10 names checked off on my ballot. So we seem to be finally getting past that giant backlog that built up in the PD candidate era. Yeah, that's um, I I did my annual five-year outlook piece uh, for Fangraphs last January 28th, and I called it Closing the Floodgates, uh, the next five years of BBWAA Hall of Fame elections. And, you know, that showed that uh, 
really, I think that you know the the uh, the boom times were over. We've seen twenty candidates uh, elected by the writers over the past six years, uh, the largest swell of candidates in in the institution's history, and uh, uh, I believe it's two of the four times that we've seen four candidates elected in a single slate. But uh, yeah, we've we've thinned out the herd. There's still some holdovers that are that are that are on the ballot that have been been languishing for too long. But they're going to get more scarce for for the next few years. Uh, I think it's not nece- not necessarily just a, a, co- a commentary on, on on the quality of players so much as we have just had kind of an embarrassment of riches over the last few years. And and you're right, it's you're not necessarily going to be able to go to ten in the same way that uh, uh, I think that most voters have expected to, the majority of voters in a lot of years uh, over the past uh, half decade uh, have expected to, although that kind of leaves a little bit more room for a little bit of uh, personal preference and, you know, desire to keep discussing some of these guys rather than consigning them to uh, the one and done uh, category. Yeah. So the new class is kind of weak. There's Derek Jeter, who's a shoe in but then the best of the rest is really Bobby Abreu, probably, who I, I love Bobby Abreu, and I'm probably in the demographic of voter who would be most likely to vote for Bobby Abreu, and even so, I'm not sure that I would bring myself to vote for Bobby Abreu, so I assume he's going to be one and done, or at least, you know, that he'll maybe get over the threshold, but won't make any serious run at it, and I guess that means that the big question about this year's fresh faces are will Jeter be unanimous which is sort of a silly question because who cares <laughs> you know <laughs> every right. every deserving player probably deserves to be unanimous if it's a, not a year where you have more qualified candidates than spaces and it's just a matter of well Rivera was unanimous last year and so does that mean that finally voters who would refuse to vote for any first time candidate because there was no history of candidates getting Getting in unanimously will now not be able to say that, and so won't make that case. Yeah, it's Abreu is definitely at the top of the list among the rest of them. I think he's he's below the jaws line in terms of the meaning the standard at the position, which is the highest of any position because of the uh, the top heaviness of uh, having five guys with a hundred WAR. Uh, Ruth, Aaron, Musil, Ott, and Frank Robinson, uh, mm. kind of uh, skewing the, the the ratings a bit, but he's above fifty jaws, which is really about the threshold where where you know I think it's perfectly reasonable to talk about it to understand that a guy may not be uh, you know exactly an above average candidate, but is really hardly you know a a, a definitively below average candidate. I believe he's above the median. Uh, at the position, for example, we've got 26 Hall of Famers there, and I'm trying to remember exactly how many he's ahead of, but uh, he's about at the halfway point. Uh, he is sandwiched between Dave Winfield and Vlad Guerrero. Uh, Vlad obviously just elected a, a, a couple years ago. Uh, very comparable career and peak numbers uh, to Vlad, uh, slightly ahead on both. So, but uh, much less much less well rewarded in his career. Only a two-time mm-hmm. all-star. Uh, I believe it's a one gold glove. We certainly saw a lot of his defensive shortcomings when he played here with the Yankees. He got pretty lousy late in his career. Uh, but, you know, he was an on-base machine for all of his career and, and uh, uh, outstanding power-speed combination. Uh, that I think was really, you know, under-recognized. Not uncommon, not, uh, 
He's got all, uh, some things in common in that regard with uh, Dwight Evans on the mm-hmm. who's on the uh, mo- the modern baseball ballot. Evans was only a three time All Star. Different skill sets. Evans was an outstanding defender who couldn't really pair his best defensive seasons with his best offensive seasons with great frequency. But you know, just guys who have uh, high on base percentages, I think, have traditionally been very underappreciated in terms of how that has an impact on their total value. And, and both of those guys fit that bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hardly uh, the only dimension of their game. Yeah. So we've already seen one prospective voter say that he will be voting for only Derek Cheater. So as I think it's two. I believe is it's it two, two now. Oh I goodness. think I think we had I think we had two on the same day. Uh, okay. Uh, well, yeah. So as not to sully Cheater's induction with uh, any just less gross. <laughs> just just gross. Uh, yeah. So I mean that is obviously very silly, but. I wonder whether that speaks to just the esteem that Jeter's held in or whether he has given back any of that reputation because he has not had such a, a popular or successful stint as Marlin's owner thus far <laughs> or, or I don't know, the Players' Tribune or, or what, whether his reputation has soured at all or whether just the continued acknowledgement of advanced defensive stats that paint him in a more negative light, not in a he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame light, but just he's not an inner circle Hall of Fame guy necessarily if you count the defense, certainly a deserving one. So would you wager that he will be elected unanimously and follow Rivera? I That's a good question. I don't know. You've just given a lot to unpack there. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think Jeter, because of the success that he had and because of the team for which he had it, is a polarizing player. People mm-hmm. feel people feel extreme in one direction or another about him. You know, he was the centerpiece of a, of a five-time champion. He is in the top 10 all-time in hits. He was, what, like 14-time all-star, something like that. You know, he was very, very good hitter for for the position. He was also what we know was a kind of a lousy defender, perhaps historically so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of, uh, I think, because he was such a face-of-the-game type guy, I think he was he, you know, he was maybe a bit overexposed, uh, thanks to the three-tier playoff format. I think, you know, a certain segment of fans got rightly sick of Jeter. I think, though, you distinguish between what what the 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 bystanders to this process feel, which includes also, you know, uh, maybe some justifiable anger towards his tenure with the Marlins so far. You know, maybe some of the, just some of the uh, persona stuff in general versus what the average media member feels towards him. And I think those are two different things. And mm-hmm. I think from a, a voter standpoint, I don't see that he did anything that would justify leaving him off even the first ballot. No. You know, this is this is a guy who got 3,000 hits. Guys who get 3,000 hits get voted in first ballot almost invariably, unless they have a, a PED allegation attached to their name, and he doesn't. Yeah. You know, uh, just because Willie Mays and Hank Aaron didn't get unanimous doesn't mean that that dumb tradition has to carry forward. We saw it end last year, justifiably taken out behind the barn and and, <laughs> and, and, and given a good whack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I would much rather see whether it's Derek Cheater or uh, Ichiro Suzuki or 
whomever, you know, just stop the nitpicking and just, you know, these guys all deserve a hundred percent. I mean, you know, yeah. Greg, Ma- Greg Maddox deserved a hundred percent, you know, uh, just a lot of these guys did and, and Chipper Jones deserved a hundred percent. And there was a time when I, when I, uh, put down in print that I thought Chipper would be the first just because, uh, at that point it appeared that, um, you know, the, the, the will of the BBWAA electorate, uh, was to publish all ballots. And then that transparency was probably going to lead to a unanimous decision even before Mariano Rivera came along. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that it's, if, if they couldn't go unanimous for Ken Griffey Jr., Maybe it's maybe it's unreasonable to expect that they're going to go unanimous for 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 Derek Jeter, but I don't think that anybody who doesn't choose him is going to reveal himself, and it's definitely a him. Um, so I, I, I I can I can just I can I I I don't say that to you know refer to the fact that they're you know the the electorate is is one hundred percent male. It's not, um, but but anybody who does is almost invariably going to be somebody who's grandstand you know a, a grandstanding man just as just as much grandstanding as somebody who only choose, chose Jeter mm-hmm. uh, on on his ballot. Yeah, and you wrote Rivera benefited from a perfect storm of voter accountability, transparency, consensus on his status as the best ever within his niche and universal respect throughout the industry. And maybe Jeter has some of that universal respect. I mean, I guess Rivera's... you got to spell it with a two, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Rivera's reputation was probably more spotless a year ago before the, yeah. the White House visit and the Trump comments. But yes. as a player and as a competitor, certainly he had a, a great reputation and still does. And, and Jeter did, too. And I think people look at him as like he's the clean player in that era of tainted players. Right. Of course, we don't know who was doing what but he's never been connected to anything but he doesn't have that best ever within his niche and and you could still say that he was a more valuable player than Mariano Rivera certainly going by regular right. old war he would be maybe not if you count postseason but he doesn't have you know best shortstop ever status the way that Rivera had right best and he was ever status yeah and and you know for for a time when you know when Jeter rose to prominence it was as part of that shortstop trinity that also included Alex Rodriguez and and uh, Nomar Garcia Parra. Um, and there were certainly years when all three were going concerns that he might have been the third best of those. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, in some ways, he kind of, he kind of suffered by comparison to them, but he outlasted them at the position you know, for, you know, reasons that are, that are, because <laughs> uh, he refused to move. <laughs> not always, not always necessarily the most wholesome reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the reality is that, that, uh, he had the staying power and had amassed the, the right to stave off that kind of move, which might have hastened his, his exit from the stage. And, you know, it's a, it's a, I think it's, it's all kind of complicated, but it's, you know, the reality is sixth all time in hits mm-hmm. and, and, and no reason to doubt the veracity of, of his accomplishment. I mean, that's, you know, there are 19,000 plus players who've played baseball, you know, over the past 150 years and, and they don't, you know, most of them did not get anywhere close to what, to what he accomplished. That's a hall of famer. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of other strong first-time candidates besides Jeter and possibly Abreu, who is poised to take advantage of that, the holdovers who might see a boost? I guess the big one that everyone will be paying attention to because he's in his final year of eligibility is Larry Walker. So can he make another big leap and get to 75%? Yeah, he would. Walker would have to get would have to essentially equal last year. He gained 20.5% percentage points last year he'd, he'd have to get 20.4 this year um that to me that's that's probably a tall order but you know in just the same way that we've kind of seen this 
uh, you know, on the field. And, and as you have, have been one of the primary documenters, this, you know, malleability in terms of trajectory and, and improvement through, you know, through, because of the age that we live in with the technological input and maybe a, a more open-mindedness. We're, we've seen that to some extent within the, the Hall of Fame voting too. You know, going back all the way to, to Burt Blylevin's recovery from, from a slow start, uh, the rallies of, of Edgar Martinez and Tim Raines before him, uh, to overcome the loss of five years of eligibility and, and, and the slow starts to their candidacy. We've seen a lot of very, you know, nearly unprecedented stuff, if not fully unprecedented stuff in the last few years. So I wouldn't say never for Walker. You know, I think that, uh, at the very least, he has positioned himself to almost certainly enter the Hall of Fame sometime in the not too distant future because he's already above 50% and uh, almost certainly will get above 60%, maybe even 70% of the vote. But it's still a tall order to get to 75% here, especially because he's been so unsupported on uh, the private ballots, which are generally, you know, retired voters and voters who, you know, for one reason or another are more or less beyond accountability. They're not Mm-hmm. They're not publishing their ballots. They're not. They're they're maybe not doing a, a lot of uh, uh, deep research into you know into the candidates. They're just you know going on memory and triple crown stats and uh, and, and whatever and and probably levying too too hard or too high an impact on on uh, you know just a too high a discount on on his time in Coors Field. But I think that you know he's going to benefit from the less crowded ballot. To some extent, maybe Kurt Schilling will, although if you do a comparison uh, in the uh, Ryan Thibodeau tracker over which guys were listed as if I had more than 10 spots, you know, and and could could add additional names, uh, Walker and Scott Rowland were well ahead of Schilling, who I think had one Mm. writer who said that. They had, I think Rowland was tops with 12. Walker, I think maybe had about 10. So, you know, I think that, you know, he, he'll add some and, and we've already seen uh, a couple people add him of the like less than 10 voters who've, who've sent in their ballots. We've, he's already picked up a couple. So I think it's a good trend, but I, I, I'm not holding my breath the, uh, that he'll be elected. So let me read you something Joe Sheehan wrote this week about Walker. He said, My resistance has always been about Walker's short career. In those 17 seasons, he had just over 8,000 plate appearances. The writers have rarely put in a player with that few plate appearances who played since the schedule went to 162 games. There was Kirby Puckett, but of course he was forced to retire early. And there was Mike Piazza, but he's a catcher. And then he continued, as with Edgar Martinez, however, the recent induction of Trevor Hoffman puts Walker's low PA totals in context. Hoffman faced 4,388 batters in his career, and even giving him some leverage credit doesn't make up nearly 4,000 plate appearances. If we're going to put low-volume relievers in, then the standard for hitters, especially hitters who were Hall of Famers on a rate basis, has to move accordingly. So I wanted to ask you about that argument because, of, of course, Jaws is set up such that players are compared to players at their own position because, you know, catchers get different playing time than right fielders Mm -hmm. or whatever. So you want to look at different standards. So should we compare relievers to relievers and say, well, reliever, it's a a job, a specialized reliever. That's a a staple in baseball now. So if you're the best at that, you should get in. Or should we say, well, yeah, but relievers just aren't as valuable as a group as these other position players. I mean, I tend to, I tend to side with the, let's, you know, let's try to keep the apples you know, apples compared to apples and oranges to oranges. But I think philosophically, it's it's worth appreciating what Joe's saying. You know, and, and I think one reason why we why I think it's worth turning to advanced statistics is is because they help to illustrate that you know playing time isn't the only thing. You know, Larry Walker did more uh, in eight thousand plate appearances than 
you mm-hmm. know, say Dave Winfield did in, in 10,000 uh, plate appearances. You know, guys who were routinely lauded for reaching major mi- – oh, Dave, sorry, Winfield had 12,000 plus plate appearances. Mm-hmm. You know, guys who are routinely lauded for sticking around to get 3,000 hits or 400, 500 home runs turned out to be less valuable over the course of their careers because they didn't have all the dimensions in their games – uh, that Walker had. You know, it's not just his hitting stats that we're voting on or his hit total we're voting on. You know, this guy was an elite defender. He was an outstanding base runner, you know, despite the fact that he didn't look like he had, you know, great speed. He was, you know, was a very smart base runner, uh, as well. And, and just this, the all around impact of his game. I mean, you know, we hear so much, you know, you know, oh, beyond the number, you know, beyond the numbers, this guy does the little things. Larry Walker did the little things and it shows up in, in, in his war. You know, in fact, the baseball reference within war, there's a combination of base running and double play avoidance stat uh, that that uh, B-Ref calls little things, mm-hmm. literally. And he's like ranks very high for his era, added an extra five wins that way just on, the, on in that facet alone. So I think what the, what these metrics can help us, you know, show is that perfect attendance is not mandatory. You know, it's like the the guy who doesn't study but but still aces the test. Uh, Larry Walker did enough for his teams in the eight thousand plate appearances he made, or the hundred forty games a year, or hundred thirty games a year, that he had a greater impact than guys who were who were there for all hundred sixty two sometimes. You know, it's it's like a catcher in some ways. I mean, you got to pick your spots. You couldn't pl- you couldn't play Larry Walker every day. I mean, playing at high altitude exacts a physical cost. Playing on AstroTurf as he did during his time in, in Olympic Stadium exacts mm-hmm. a physical cost. I mean, those things need to be appreciated when you're talking about, oh, he only played a, more than 143 games once or whatever. Um, you got to look at the context within which that occurred. He also, you know, two of his seasons were cut into by the strike. Yeah, right. And then the rest of the players on the ballot who might stand to gain from this year's small new class, you've got the problematic trio of Mm. Bonds and Clemens and Schilling, problematic for different reasons, many reasons. (laughs) They each have (laughs) multiple reasons, maybe. Right. (laughs) And then you've got the other PD-tainted players. You've got Manny and you've got Sheffield and Sosa and Giambi and on and on. And and then you've got Roland, who you briefly touched on who I would vote for if I could now and and will a couple of years from now, but uh, may have trouble gaining a, a huge amount of support. So do you see anyone else making a, a serious run? At I it? mean, I think just about everybody is going to benefit from, you know, from this in some way or another, some more than others. I don't see a ton. I don't see Bonds and Clemens gaining a ton of support by the looser ballot. Again, going back to the, you know, the the self-reporting voters in terms of who they would add if they had more than 10. Schilling had one voter. I think Bonds and Clemens each had two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have more or less made up their minds about them. Um, although maybe there are some people who, who feel like, you know, they would be willing to, to, to include them if it weren't, you know, at the expense of, let's just call it a more wholesome player. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's guys that not maybe, you know, guys that I favor will, will benefit. And I think some guys that I'm not, that I'm not so wild about, you know, from a hall of fame standpoint will, will gain. I think Jeff Kent, you know, there's no reason that Jeff Kent won't gain some ground or Andy Pettit, you know, as well as Scott Rowland and yeah. Todd Helton. Omar Vizquel. Yeah, Omar Vizquel will certainly gain ground. Although I don't, I don't get the sense that there are. I mean, you know, he's such a such a different case, and he's also one who is really kind of right in the middle. You know, among returning candidates, we go from Walker at fifty four percent to Vizquel at forty two point eight percent to Kent at eighteen percent. There's a big middle ground there. Billy Wagner's one I think will benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually 
kind of ballot managed him onto my virtual ballot last year. And, you know, I, th- I get the sense that there are a lot of people who would like to, uh, you know, would like to find room for, for him. I think there just could be a lot of, you know, I think there's maybe if you're if you're inclined to vote for Bonds and Clemens, you 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 could probably easily go eight or nine deep, and and you've maybe got uh, a, a vote for personal preference there. Uh, beyond that, if you if if you feel like going to ten, and if you're if you're not inclined to vote for those guys, you know you've you've still got some room to play with if you want to, uh, you know, recognize uh, uh, somebody whether it's Pettit or. Or, or Kent or whatever, who you feel like the, the, the numbers that, that, that I'm using don't do them justice. Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of, I guess, less obvious picks if you were to be voting this year? I, I don't know if you've made up your mind yet about what your virtual ballot will look like, but is there anyone who is, you know, not just a, a straight, yes, he satisfies the Jaws criteria, so. Yeah, I, I think, I think about, I think about Sheffield a lot. Yeah, me because, too. Because, you know, the extent to which those defensive stats just hammer him. Yeah. You know, and our, and our, you know, my, my just, my concern about the, about, you know, outliers in any form, Jeter as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that, that we're not necessarily doing them justice because you know a more you know if, if it's justifiable to to apply a, a a more delicate and regressed measure for fielding, then he doesn't need to get hit nearly as hard. Um, Billy Wagner, because I've kind of turned away from just using straight jaws when it comes to relievers, mm-hmm. those are two that I take the longest look at. Todd Helton, because his peak is well above the standard, uh, even if his his jaws is a little bit below. Um, is one that that's an easy yes for me. Likewise with Andrew Jones, yeah, who I think he's I've kind of to, the opposite of the Sheffield case, I guess. Yeah, where- <laughs> he yeah he is he is. Uh, you know, it's it's you know there are multiple ways to look at these guys. Defensive metrics, I think we have to acknowledge there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty there. You know, even o- over the course of careers, there's some uncertainty. But I think we you know when you've got competing methodologies and and you know that 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 could change our our point of view it's worth acknowledging that and and no and you know the fact that we don't have a a magic bullet answer i mean like the the work of chris dial mm-hmm. you know who's involved in the uh gold glove uh voting and the the statistical component which includes mm-hmm. his forerunner to uzr called uh, runs effectively defended or red mm-hmm. you know he has some interesting things to say about uh uh, the the merits of the gold gloves won by Vizkel and Jones worth tracking down uh, those extended threads in uh, Twitter, some of which I've I've quoted in my articles or at least summarized. So yeah, it's you know I'd like to think that I you know I I've, you know I might surprise you if you're if all you're looking at is the baseball reference table and seeing who's who's exactly above the line in Jaws and who isn't. Yes, mm-hmm. I think my virtual ballot will end up surprising you. If you read my series, you'll probably get get an idea of uh, or you listen to you know me talk about it in other contexts, you'll probably get an idea that uh, yes, even I do deviate from my own system, uh, you know, to to a small degree here and there. It's probably a little early to be talking about this. It doesn't come into play with anyone on this year's ballot, but I know you've written about it and I wrote about it this past postseason, the question of catcher framing and how that will factor into Hall of Fame candidacies because we just saw Yadier Molina and Brian McCann and Russ Martin playing in the postseason and McCann, of course, retired, so he started his Hall of Fame clock and... (laughs) By that Mm -hmm. point, you know, five, six, seven years from now, whenever it is that all of these guys are eligible, 
we might see every version of war incorporating catcher framing. We might see more understanding and acceptance of that. On the other hand, maybe robot umps will be more of a reality by then and, and people won't want to retroactively credit catchers hmm. for, for something like that at that point. So do you have any idea how that's going to go? I don't have it. I certainly don't have a crystal ball. I would, you know, I think I'm, I wrote about these guys, particularly McCann and Martin, uh, this spring when, 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 uh, Fangraphs added catcher framing, you know, I know that, that, uh, their version of defensive runs saved, uh, that includes catcher framing is on baseball reference, although it's not included in the official war totals. Right. I have had, uh, I, I'm kind of curious. You know, I know we've, we've, we've seen a pretty credible version of what we call retro framing done at, done mm-hmm. at baseball prospectus, which I think still to me has the gold standard of the framing metrics, mm-hmm. um, because it goes so far back. And I have talked to the purveyors of, of both that and, 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 and the fangrass version about, you know, is there any signal to be, to be picked up? If we move prior to 1988 and are just yeah. looking at the with you, without you strikeout rates mm-hmm. uh, and walk rates of pitchers, you know, could we ever get even the slightest approximation of what a Johnny Bench or a Gary Carter or a Carlton Fisk might have added or subtracted with regards to framing? Yeah. You know, I think looking back, you know, I keep thinking of the Mike Piazza example. Piazza was mm-hmm. slagged for having such a low caught stealing percentage, but it turns out he was very good at pitch blocking mm-hmm. and outstanding at pitch framing. And, and, and we now have that data on, well, it's not, you know, it didn't keep him from the Hall of Fame. I think it makes his overall case, uh, it strengthens his overall case. You know, we and 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 our understanding of where we place him within the pantheon. You know, knowing that, um, and knowing that, uh, uh, yeah, not every catcher who's good defensively is good defensively in the same way. Yeah, right. There's a just a few years of Gary Carter framing data from the tail end of his career when he was, you know, in his mid to late 30s, and even then he was quite good according to the numbers we have. So who knows yeah. if we had his whole career? But yeah, then that gets into that whole debate about well, is it fair to evaluate today's catchers completely differently from yesteryear's catchers. I mean, I I think, (laughs) right. No, to some extent, I think you're going to have to go on, you know, at least get, at least starting with a a sense of where they ranked within their era, you know, and and we see that, that, uh, you know, McCann and Martin in a framing inclusive way and, to a lesser extent, Molina, or maybe to a greater extent, I don't, I, I'm forgetting exactly what the rankings say, but like, yes, that those guys are significantly ahead of the pack, you know, because of the combination of longevity and excellence and at least, you know, some, some amount of, uh, of two way contribution, which for Molina mm-hmm. was, was maybe more batting average centric and for mm-hmm. McCann was more power centric and for Martin more on base percent. But, you know, that's pigeonholing each one and they all had their, you know, their merits. But I don't think it's an absurd argument that if, especially if Yade Molina is going to skate into the Hall of Fame based on the consensus of the little things that we couldn't capture with war, uh, that we think about Martin and McCann in those same ways because, the numbers certainly uphold the idea that they were uh, every bit as good in the framing department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a complicated thing, which I know you've experienced because you based Jaws on war and war changes in some way every year. I mean, depending on which war you're using, things are added, things are recalculated, there are new baselines. The catcher framing addition, that's you know the big one because that can really change certain guys' value. But if you add value to catchers, then maybe that takes it away from pitchers. And you know, there's yeah. a kind of a constant reaccounting that goes on, which uh, is 
is good because hopefully we're getting closer and closer to an accurate appraisal, but it can be tricky if you have a, a system based on it and that system is not static. So yeah, it's 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 you know it's something I I, I kind of think about. I was reading that that great piece about the Universal Music Group fire mm-hmm. a few months ago yeah. uh, by Jody Rosen in the New York Times, and and you know talks about the existence of master recordings and how technology allows us to go back and get and preserve more of it you know with each generation we get you know better fidelity able to to you know like wider dynamic range you mm-hmm. know with the, obviously with the right tools you know we're able to improve our our the versions that that we get to hear and i think you know baseball statistics especially wins above re- uh, replacement with all that we've got and with all that we you know continue to add to it by learning you know by by researching and learning you know we we enhance that we get we're getting more clarity out of out of these older careers you know we also can acknowledge that there's more uncertainty in certain spots but you know, I think on the whole, they enhance our appreciation when we know, um, oh, you know, this guy from 20 years ago was was doing a lot more than we gave him credit for at the time. And, yeah. uh, and you know, and we can incorporate that into our judgments here when we're, we're thinking about, uh, uh, you know, his all-time standing. Yeah. And just as music publishers can keep releasing remastered right. box sets every few yeah. years and you can release a remastered Cooperstown casebook and get more sales again. God, I yeah, I, what I really need to do is is formally start pitching a new a new version of the book because we've already got what, four or five guys uh, that I profiled uh, have been elected, and we've got a bunch more up for election mm-hmm. this year. And uh, hope that uh, at least uh, uh, one or two of them get in. Um, Lou Whitaker, Ted Simmons, yeah, uh, are 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 on the ballot. I mean, it's inevitable that Kurt Schilling is going to get in. And knock on wood, hopeful that uh, uh, Minnie Minoso and uh, Dick Allen uh, next year via the Golden Days Committee. And mm. uh, yeah, and suddenly you turn over the whole slate or, or, or most of the slate and I've got a whole new batch of guys I'd like to write about in that form and, and some essays that uh, uh, I'd like to tackle in longer form, both uh, – you know things that didn't fit in the first book, and things that are that I've thought of since then, and things that are, you know, kind of updating or contrasting certain trends. And and uh, uh, yeah, I, I certainly have more to say on the subject, and I think people want to read more about the subject. You know, finding the right audience and and all that is 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 still the challenge. And and uh, uh, but yeah, I'd like to think that uh, there will be eventually, a, you know, a second case book somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you've already finished writing about the modern baseball era ballot, and I wanted to talk about this. I'm kind of conflicted, I guess, about the continued just uh, re-airing of candidacies because there are certain eras that have just been picked over so many times that if you're not in by now, maybe that's that. Maybe you've had your chance. And historically speaking, those kind of secondary ways to get into the hall have produced a, a lot of the more questionable choices. On the other hand, I want... Lou Whitaker to get in. You know, there are certain guys every year who really have a a strong chance. And for whatever reason, they just didn't get their due when they were first on the ballot. So on the one hand, we get this kind of as a way to just get Jack Morris in somehow, or, you know, to put Harold Baines in because a, a bunch of people on the committee liked Harold Baines. And it's sort of strange to have this one system with hundreds of people voting and then this other with, you know, just a little more than a handful of people voting and yet both get you into the Hall of Fame. But on the other hand, right. there there are still some deserving players who got passed over who should get another shot, it seems like. Yeah, look, for as much as I 
can have and will continue to criticize the Hall of Fame. I do think that the current era committee system was reasonably well thought out in terms of the varying frequencies with which eras are reevaluated. I think we have largely picked over the uh, the early baseball candidates. And so considering them once every decade uh, seems appropriate. Uh, we've learned a lot about Doc Adams in the last decade, thanks to the work mm-hmm. of John Thorne, for example. I think, you know, war has given us a better appreciation of, say, Bill Dolan and, and Jack Glasscock. Mm-hmm. And there's maybe a couple other guys in there that, that you know, some 19th century pitchers. I know there's a uh, a, a guy who's uh, um, banging the drum endlessly for Jim McCormick, <laughs> you know, and, and and so look, I think it's I think it's fine to 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 look at you know to to reevaluate those and you know w- once in a while and see hey did we miss anything you know did do these new methodologies and our new new research add anything to our understanding sure that's that seems fine but we just don't have to do that every year or every or every other year um, on the other hand you know the seventies I think is uh, you know seventies and eighties are, are still kind of underrepresented within the within the hall mm-hmm. and the that I mean if Lou Whitaker getting only one chance compared to the dozens of times uh, some of these veterans committee guys were were up in the past or you know Gil Hodges with full 15 year run on the ballot I don't know how many times on on veterans committee ballots um, you know there's a there's an inequity there uh, and I think you know having having this I mean you could draw up two very strong slates of the modern baseball that, that have no overlap and still create you know, a backlog of candidates or, or still find, you know, find a way to get a ballot where you've got four slots, but maybe five guys worth voting for. I mean, like, you know, if we're go if we're talking about that era, I mean, imagine a, a ballot that has, you know, Keith Hernandez on it and, uh, you know, Billy Martin and George Steinbrenner and Charlie Finley, not necessarily the most savory guys, but guys whose footprint on baseball history is huge. Uh, and they're comparable to guys who are in the Hall of Fame and, and, uh, uh, are, are worth considering in that context. And then you, you know, um, Bill Freehan, uh, 11 time All Star who just went one and done, uh, in, in the early 80s. I mean, just, there's just a whole lot there, you know, from that era. And, you know, I think reevaluating some of these errors with more frequency is the right thing to do. That said, I'm not very comfortable with the 16 member format or mm-hmm. before it, at times it was, it was down to as few as 12. One person in those small rooms can have an outsized impact. I would much rather see uh, these electorates double uh, in size and maybe even triple, you know, and, and, and have some way that, you know, if, if Harold Baines is up for election on a small committee ballot, then, you know, anybody who, who, who was the owner or the GM or the manager during his tenure has to recuse himself from that vote. You know, mm-hmm. They can stay there yeah. and they can, they can testify on his behalf, but they don't get to put their thumb on the scale. Uh, and the hall doesn't get to hand pick an all-star lineup of, of, of witnesses for each guy or for certain guys uh, and give the appearance that they are uh, gaming this process, because that's certainly what seemed to happen last year with Harold Baines. And I'm sure it's probably, you know, the, we're not beyond the possibility that, that it could happen again, either for, for a candidate or against it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't, I mean, I, I don't think if Joe Morgan, who's on the hall board of directors and who wrote that letter about the, about the PED, you know, keeping PED candidates out, if he can go join the, join a committee uh, when he so chooses, of course, he's going to join the committees that, that, that can have an impact on, on, uh, uh, you know, when PED can related candidates are up for election. And that, you know, that's kind of, uh, I don't know, that's it smacks of a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, that's a big spiel. 
<laughs> and, and there are cases where maybe one player getting in helps another player get in because you say, well, this guy's in. And if you look at it, this other player is not actually different from that player. And yeah. maybe you could do that with like, uh, you know, Vlad Guerrero got in and maybe Larry Walker is just as good a player, if not a better player. And they were contemporaries. Right. So that's the kind of case where you might see that effect. But there's probably not going to be a Harold Baines effect, right? Like, because you could play the, well, if Baines is in, this guy should be in game with with everyone. Well, I mean, you know, from the from the um from the writers from the, from you know from the BBWA perspective, I think there's a lot of distaste for the election of Baines, not for Baines personally, but mm-hmm. for the fact that, you know, f- he had five times on the ballot and got no more than 6. Point whatever percent. I mean, overwhelmingly rejected. You know, no no mm-hmm. no no no. And you know, and that was overturned by the today's game committee. You know, I think, so I think there's a discomfort there, but I think the, you know, with that, and I don't think we're going to, you know, we're not seeing Harold Baines used as a bar, you know, for, <laughs> for other candidates because then you've got 18 guys on this ballot or whatever yeah. it is. You know, he's 75th among right fielders. So, you know, going down the list, obviously a Braves a yes. And, and, and not only that, but, uh, uh, hey, have you considered, uh, um, you know, Sheffield and, 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jeff Kent at his position or whatever, you know, you can go way, you know, way over the line with that. But with the the impact of of those votes on the small committees, I think we just have to acknowledge that we don't know what the hell is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Especially because the you know there's there's just such a there's even more trans there's even less transparency in the process now with we you know with us not knowing who's on these panels beforehand and and at least you know having some ability to to report that and disseminate it you know in a way that has an impact on on things you know than before because mm-hmm. it used to be when the panel was announced you know when the ballot was announced the voters were announced and that's with the move to this new uh, iteration of the era committees that's no longer the case so i'll ask you about marvin miller in a second but the players on this modern baseball ballot there are some good ones and and some probably deserving ones so even though we think of this as the body that got jack morris in or that got harold baines in there are players with pretty strong cases here so you've got lou whitaker you've got ted simmons You've got Thurman Munson, you've got Dwight Evans, and you know then there are lesser guys like Steve Garvey, who is certainly more famous than Harold Baines, but probably not a, a better player, or at least not significantly so. And then you've got you know Mattingly and Murphy, who are beloved but don't quite make that bar, and Tommy John, who kind of has a, a dual legacy going for him. But I think you have made cases at least for Whitaker and Simmons and Munson and and maybe Evans too, or or at least have explained that case. So can you lay those out? Yeah, sure. I mean, Whitaker, you know, Whitaker is, I think he's got the the highest war of uh, just about anybody outside the Hall of Fame, except for Bonds and Clemens. Yeah. Career war, that is. Bobby Gritch is a little higher on peak. There's another guy who you put on a, a, yeah. a an era committee, that that, that 70s ballot, and, and you know, you're, you're going to produce a similarly strong slate. Uh, Whitaker is ahead of him on career, lower on peak, uh, but uh, – uh, just an outstanding two-way second baseman in a way that I don't think we really appreciated enough at the time. Uh, five-time All-Star. The fact that the Tigers only won one World Series and only made it to two playoffs, you know, I think has has hurt him. But, you know, he was right there with Alan Trammell. Uh, both of those guys did a lot to, you know, prevent the runs that Jack Morris is credited with. 
uh, preventing because he was not a high strikeout pitcher. I think he belongs in, I think Ted Simmons, who was uh, an offensively elite catcher for most of his career, but kind of got lost in the shadows uh, first behind Johnny Bench, then behind Gary Carter, you know, is a guy who, who, who should be in. He's another guy with a, a very strong peak at his position. Uh, Dwight Evans, high on base, good, you know, very good defense, just didn't pair them quite enough. Um, he's a little bit more borderline for me. He's kind of the, it's a career versus peak argument versus him between him and Thurman Munson, who only played 11 years of which two were partial and did it all awards wise, rookie of the year, MVP, catcher for two championship teams, plus another pennant winner, uh, outstanding in the postseason, you know, gold gloves. Uh, did all these things, All-Stars uh, versus Evans, who was only three-time All-Star, and, and besides the gold gloves, uh, didn't really get the same the same kind of attention. To me, it came down to those two for the last spot, and I went with Munson with uh, the fourth slot reserved for Miller, who I think really, you know, it's just an absurdity yeah. uh, that, that, that he's not in, and unfortunately kind of a, a, a tragedy too. Yeah. Well, so with Miller, I mean, the only question really is whether you should put in someone who said toward the end of his life that he didn't want to be in, in his 90s, you know, because it had taken so long and because he had been passed over so many times, he said, no thanks, you know, I don't want to be a a member of this body. And Mm -hmm. his children have said that they don't want it, that they wouldn't show up. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have the fact that he's just a giant of the game who changed baseball as much as or more than anyone. And and it's hard to say that the museum is, is complete or representative without having him in there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, uh, I think Red Barber had it right when he said that the three people, the three most influential people in baseball history were Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, and Marvin Miller, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, other variants of that have Branch Ricky as as the fourth on what you might call a Rushmore. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there's he had the most impact of any non-player in the in the game's history, and and uh, uh, the list of of rights that he won for the players and and the, the effect of them uh, is massive. Maybe not always to everybody's liking. I mean, you know, free agency is kind of a double-edged sword in terms of what it, you know what it does to team continuity and to um, you know fans' connections to players, but um, you know, basically, it was an argument for workplace rights, mm-hmm. and and a very convincing one at that. I think, while I respect and appreciate the wishes of the family, you know, with regards to to Marvin Miller's uh, uh, desire not to be in the Hall of Fame, um, I think you know when I spoke to him uh, in '08, I guess it was, and and you know, you read the interviews, and he was, you know, this is a guy who was listed in the phone book. You could call him up, <laughs> yeah. you know, at a level of accessibility that just we don't get these days anymore. <laughs> you know, the, the signals were were you know were not without their occasional ambiguity, but I think you know as much as we can appreciate his wishes and those of his families, our greater duty, you know, is to baseball history and. Personally, I love the idea that if you put Marvin Miller uh, in the Hall of Fame, his plaque is going to be glaring at that of Bowie Kuhn and all the all the other small men who tried to keep him out, um, and it's going to bug the hell out of some people on the Hall of Fame board uh, every time they walk past it. You know, he's a gi- it's a giant middle finger there, and that's why it has to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, one more thing I, I wanted to mention, you know, sometimes you get these candidates who, for whatever reason, people just think of them as as closer to Hall 
Hall of Famers than their war would say or their jaws would say. Maybe Garvey's an example of that. But I saw mm-hmm. a tweet from Tyler Kepner of The Times earlier this month, and he said, Paul Konerko's career is laughably undervalued by war. He had 27.7 baseball reference war, which is fewer than Von Hayes, Martin Prado, Rondell White, etc. War is useful to me as a general guideline, but sometimes it just feels way off. And I guess the question there is, you know, does that mean that war is way off or does that mean that your perception of the player is way off? I think, I, <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a perception. I mean, look, yeah. Paul, Paul Conurco had 400 something home runs, 439 home runs, but a 118 OPS plus from, from a, a first baseman, it's not right. anything special. And then you look at the little things that chip away at his value. I mean, he's extreme. Minus 36 in base running runs. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Minus 40 in double play runs. That's yeah. massive. I mean, without looking, I'd have to say that's probably a, almost easily a top 10 total mm-hmm. uh, for the for the years that we have coverage. Uh, minus 52 in fielding runs. Yep. Uh, d- double digits below average, you know, in uh, both 2010 and 2012. I mean, that's below DH caliber. That's like the point at which, God, you, you know, you're really <laughs> doing your team a disservice by playing him in the field. You know, I know Adam Dunn was there and boy, he's a terrible fielder too. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, you know, there were just Conurco did not have the little things that added up. I mean, he had good triple crown stats and that's really, mm-hmm. you know, what, what it comes down to. I mean, 439 home runs and, uh, you know, four above 40 home runs, uh, a couple times and above 30, uh, you know, a bunch of times, seven times, seven or eight times above, th- of 30 home runs or more. Lots of 100 RBI seasons, lots of 300 batting average seasons. Uh, but you know, there's just, there was less to it than, than meets the eye once you, uh, start accounting for the broader context of, of, of his career and, and, and all that. And, yeah. you know, I, I like, I, 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 I understand that, you know, it's not fun to rain on the parade of, of, of those who, you know, thought Paul, Paul Konerka was, was, uh, uh, an outstanding representative, uh, of, for the White Sox and for baseball in general and, mm-hmm. and who have fond memories of his career. But it doesn't mean we have to honor them with Cooperstown. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we just, you know, we owe baseball history and, you know, an, an honest accounting. And, you know, if he's this generation's, Steve Garvey or, or, or whatever, then, uh, you know, fine. I mean, this is a guy who didn't finish higher than fifth in an MVP voting, Yeah, you know, wasn't really even thought of along the lines of a Garvey. So I'm not particularly sympathetic to the idea that, that he's somebody who deserves a lot of Hall consideration because, you know, Garvey at least had that, that kind of fame going for him. Mm-hmm. Konerko, you know, didn't even have that. Yeah. And some of his big years came in high scoring years and yes. years when there were very right. high standards for offensive first basemen. I mean, there are other guys on the ballot, Giambi, Helton. Granted, mm-hmm. you know, Giambi has PD stuff and Helton has course field, but those guys were better players and better hitters than Paul Konerko. And right. even they probably aren't quite at that level. So, yeah. Well, even, at, you know, you adjust for the era stuff. And I mean, yeah, yeah tw- you know, they've got, they've each got 15 points or, or more on him in terms of OPS plus. And uh, Helton was a legitimately excellent defender. Yeah, Giambi had on base percentage for days. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it looks different once you move beyond the triple crown stats. Right. And war should surprise you sometimes. If it never right. surprised you, yeah, then I, there like, wouldn't I, be any I, value to it. Yeah, know? I and war and jaws, I mean, look, I, I, I said this something to the effect of my chat, you know, even when we're using like, you know, pre batted ball directional, whatever you want to call it, advanced fielding stats, 
even the crude method that a crude method called like total zone that comes up with Roberto Clemente, Brooks Robinson, Mark Belanger slash Ozzie Smith and Willie Mays as the number one defensive players at their position probably can't be that far off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're talking about, uh, uh, its view, of, it, you know, it's, it's view of other players where they don't always square, you know, square with perception, say Vizquel. You know, I, I like the fact that Jaws will surprise me at some times. I think that's, you know, if, if it's getting it, if, if, if it's obvious 80% of the time, but surprises you 20% of the time, that seems like it's about a good ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you do want to, you know, you do want to realize that we don't get, get everything right the first time around. And, uh, there are things we miss that, uh, uh, new stats help to eliminate. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we need to just vote straight war or Jaws. And as you said, you, you don't do that and won't do that, but, uh, it's a, it's a good guideline. It's probably better than just eyeballing it based on what you thought at the time when we knew less about player value. So, right. All right. Well, we will, of course, be monitoring all of this throughout the rest of this month. The next month, ballots are due December 31st. And, of course, they must be mailed via snail mail because it's <laughs> the Hall of Fame. And uh, we'll all be looking at Ryan Thibodeau's ballot tracker. And you can read Jay's breakdowns of all the players on both of the ballots. And we'll link to the ones that are already up. But those will be appearing pretty steadily for the next month or so. So, as always, we thank you for your Hall of Fame service and everyone can go check out the Cooperstown casebook, which is uh, missing only the most recent few inductees. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. All right. Sure thing, Ben. Thanks a lot. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks for listening. We are very thankful for your continued support, especially if you are a Patreon supporter. And you can become one by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some small monthly amount, help keep the podcast going, and get yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners have already signed up. David Whitcomb, Nick Corsetti, Dutch Lombrowski, Jeremy Tice, and Zachary Bartley. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Send us your questions and comments via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a nice post-holiday break and safe holiday travel, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Just give me a chance to tell you I was wrong. Yes, baby, say that you forgive me, and in this misery, you know I'll keep on begging till you come back to me. Don't leave me here in shame in the Fool's Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame.